Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 13. We will be reading three portions, beginning with verse 24. Hear now the word of our God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Now beginning, continuing verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 47. Again the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. very sobering. Let's pray. Father, we can't, uh, in view of these realities, we can't adequately sober ourselves feel the stakes of the kingdom that your son has brought and that he will bring in fullness one day. 
And so we lean completely upon you now by faith that your spirit would do the work in us and for us that we are powerless to do uh, for ourselves. And Father, I pray that as uh, on both sides of this pulpit, whether it's uh, in my heart or the hearts of my brothers and sisters, that 100% of us would be mindful of the realities that, that even just I read this morning, that, that the Lord Jesus is here. We are in his presence. We're in your presence. So I'm preaching in your presence and in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And, and uh, my brothers and sisters are hearing your word in the presence of the, the eternal Father and the eternal Son. And we want to be mindful of the second coming, the appearing of the Lord Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. And we want to be mindful as both preacher and hearers this morning, co-worshippers of his kingdom. And we pray that today, in your great mercy and for the glory of your name, that you would act savingly in the lives of many here this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, these parables um, are joined together thematically. That's why we're doing them and, uh, together. And they, these two parables, the parable of the weeds, some of your English translations might call the first parable the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, but uh, these two parables, the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net, again, some English translations call it the parable of the dragnet. doesn't matter. You know what I'm talking about. These two parables address a question that runs the entire length of the Bible, that is wrestled with the entire length of the Bible, and that our hearts wrestle with. And Jesus puts that question poses the question for us uh, by putting it on the lips of the servants of the master in verse 27. And the question goes like this. When the servants discover the weeds, they say to the master, Hey, master, didn't you sow good seeds in your field? And, of course, they know the answer to that is yes. But their question then is, Okay, if you're the master and you sowed good seeds in your field, well then, what a, what's the deal with all those weeds? Well, that's our question. Uh, and those of you who are reading this morning, turn with me to, uh, you saw it in Ecclesiastes 8. You know, I struggled all week. How do I enter this sermon? And then this morning, I realized why I didn't understand all week how to enter the sermon. I got to Ecclesiastes 8 in my reading. You go to page 557 in your pew Bible. I know the page, and I still can't get there. This is, I mean, I, I just want you to see this, because the Bible's about real life. The questions that the Scriptures deal with are about real life. So you come in here, I come in here, we've been watching uh, the news all week, wondering about how in the world is it possible for God to be king and this kind of just pointless violence to happen? Why, did, why is he allowing that to happen. And if you're not asking that question, you're not paying attention. Okay? So then you get to Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11. 
Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before me. See the tension? The writer's saying, listen, the sinner takes advantage of God's mercy because the sentence for evil isn't immediately imposed. And so there's this gap between the, this is experience, right? There's this gap between the commission of great evil and the consequences of that evil. And the writer is saying, hey, you know how the wicked person interprets that gap between the commission of the evil and the sentence is, that means there's never any consequence for my evil, so giddy up. And the writer says, no. God is king. That's a wrong conclusion. Yeah, it might look like the wicked is able to prolong his life through wickedness, but in the end, no one gets away with anything. No one gets away with anything. Because God is king. And you see, that's exactly what the servants are wondering about. They're saying, hey, you're, you're the master. You sowed good seed. And there's all, this, all these weeds. How these weeds get here? I mean, we were sleeping, granted. We didn't really see the whole story. And the master says, my enemy did this. The master has an enemy. But the servants, until they hear the master's explanation, go back with me now to Matthew 13. We're, I'm not going to preach from Ecclesiastes anymore. See, the servants, their question is a big question because they're saying, why, if you're the master? Well, let me just translate it. Jesus, if you're the king and, and with you, you bring your kingdom, then why is it that you permit so many things in the world that appear and that actually are so evidently contrary to what matters to you? I mean, you let you put up with so much that seems to create the oppression that you are either indifferent to evil or impotent before it. It makes it look so often as though you don't care about the evil in the world or that you can't do anything about it. And if either one of those are true, you're either not a good king or you're not a strong king. And that's the implied question of the servants to the master too. They're saying, wait a second, are you really the master? And his answer is Jesus' answer, which is, it looks like the enemy has foiled my plans, but trust me. Trust me. Not only will I bring the harvest in that I intend, but every attempt to spoil my plans will fail. And you see, what the, what the servants wrestle with is what we wrestle with. The master, the king, seems to allow this period of time when the weeds and the wheat grow together, and there's this overlap where it, it looks at times, we're tempted to believe, like the difference between being a weed and being wheat doesn't matter to the master. And Jesus assures us in these two parables that that 
perception of ours is a misperception and is radically wrong. Radically wrong. And what he assures us of in both parables is that there will be a full, that his kingdom means, that the coming of his kingdom means that one day there is going to be a full, final, and eternal judgment. He will personally sift all people. And there will be a final judgment. And there will only be two outcomes of that final judgment. We see them in both parables. Either eternal banishment from the kingdom or the eternal enjoyment of the kingdom. There are only two options. There are only two roads in life. Only two destinations in life. And so what I want to do this morning, next week we're going to look at eternal enjoy, the eternal enjoyment, the blessing of the sons of the kingdom, which Jesus describes in verse 43. But this morning I want to focus on the darker side of the kingdom's eternal judgment. And I want to do that under two headings with you. I want to look at three, just three uh, aspects of Christ's final judgment that he emphasizes across these two parables. And then I want to conclude by uh, reflecting on two pastoral implications, two applications for us of uh, final judgment, Christ's final judgment. So let's, let's turn to uh, the, the three observations about the character of Christ's final judgment. And here are the three things that we're going to see across both parables. One... Christ's final judgment is inescapable. It's inescapable. Two, it is familial, familial, and I'll explain what that means when we get there. And three, it's eternal. Inescapable, familial, and eternal. Let's look first at the whole idea of its inescapability. And that's really the first thing that we all have to reckon with. And right off the bat, uh, we're facing a radical contrast between the justice of God and the justice of men. You know, this week, um, because the justice of God is inescapable, the justice of man is escapable sometimes, isn't it? I mean, I, I love the FBI. I, I was just in awe this week of the way that they were able to sift all the information. What, what we know about what they worked through this week is just like a little grain of sand, right? Incredible resources, incredible wisdom about how you, where you look for pieces of a bomb. Like, who would have thought? that you would look on the roof of one of the buildings around there. They find the pressure cooker. Bingo! Amazing! But we all know, right, that no matter how fine the mesh is of even the, the most uh, faithful, uh, zealous, investigative skill that men can apply, we all know that there are situations in which the justice of men can be escaped. But you know that's not true for the justice of God. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing. It's very sobering. See, every single human being, every single human life Jesus emphasizes in these parables is going to face the reckoning of God in Jesus Christ. Every single life. Every single human story ends in the same place before the same face. That's what those parables are saying. Jesus is saying, I am the judge. I am the son of man. I am the one to whom the Father has given all judgment, John 5, 22 and 23. And all will honor me as the judge. 
every single human life is going to be evaluated, is going to be scrutinized, is going to be sifted with the infinitely fine mesh of God's blazing holiness as Jesus Christ embodies it. Your life, my life, every single life that has been lived or will ever be lived on the planet Earth will be sifted by the holiness of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He is the master. The world is his field. Every single human life, yours, mine, are his harvest. Your life is his, whether or not you yield it to him. My life is his, whether or not uh, I yield it to him. And that is astonishing because it, it means three things right off the bat. First, it means that, that Jesus Christ, my friends, matters infinitely more than we imagine. Infinitely more. I mean, I don't care if you've been a Christian for 80 years. Your conception of Jesus isn't even close to the actual magnitude of his glory. The judge of the living and the dead. There's one judge of all the living and all the dead. There's one man before whom every person will appear. One tribunal in the end before, every, before which every human life will be evaluated. One true man. The true image of God. See, we're going to be judged by one who is like us. Our judge is a man who lived under the same law of God that we did, in the same world that we do, it's going to be perfect justice. And the world is his field. There are no other fields. You see that? Verse 38, the field is the world. And that field, we know from the parable itself, it belongs to the master. There's only one master. There aren't multiple masters. There aren't multiple parcels. There's only one parcel. It's called earth. And there's only one harvest. It belongs to Jesus. And everyone, past, present, and future, will be measured against that gold standard. The false prophet Muhammad is going to stand before Jesus Christ. Buddha is going to stand before Jesus Christ. Kermit Gosnell is going to, be, is going to stand before the throne and the, the, the judging of Jesus Christ. Joseph Stalin, Chairman Mao, Adolf Hitler... Joseph Smith, they will, Kim Jong-un, they will stand before Jesus Christ. There is no other tribunal before which they will appear and by which they will be evaluated. Mike Francis will stand before the throne of Jesus Christ. He is the judge of Mike Francis. He is your judge, whether or not you acknowledge it. You see, the weeds don't have any choice, do they? They don't say, well, yeah, the master can say we're supposed to be gathered and bundled up and thrown into the fiery furnace, but we rebel. Or the bad fish. No, 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 no. You can't put us in that container. You can't throw us away. You see the picture? There is overwhelming power and authority 
And it's the authority that is wielded by Jesus Christ. He matters infinitely more than we imagine. And second, that means, friends, the inescapability of God's judgment also means that our lives matter infinitely more than we imagine. Now, let me tell you why I say that. I want you to think of this, this fact, the mere fact that the eternal God would bother to evaluate your life or my life should be this shocking wake-up call to us that our lives are important. You know, every day I walk through my yard and within the sweep of my you know, field of vision, I see thousands of fire ants. And I never bother to evaluate a single one of them because they don't affect me. They've never thwarted a single purpose that I've had. They don't get in my way. I want to drive to the store, look out. I want to mow my lawn, look out. But you know the distance between me and one of those fire ants? It's like that much compared to the distance between me and the living God. And that God would hold me up to his scrutiny. Friends, that is not the action of a tyrant. That is the action of a creator whose creation matters to him. That is the action of a creator who is the source of our dignity. That is the action of a creator who made us from the dust and yet breathed his life into us so that we would be his image bearers. He took dirt clods and said, be my subregents, be my image bearers, show the truth about me in the world. The fact that God evaluates our lives and that his justice, his judgment is inescapable is proof of our dignity. We matter to God because Jesus Christ matters to God. You, if you doubt that your life matters to God, ponder the incarnation. Jesus Christ matters to God. He's the God-man. And because we see in the ministry of Jesus Christ the importance of humanity to God, Friends, you can never, never, ever fall prey to the absolutely hellish lies that our culture tells us along these lines. Hey, you know what? The more God matters, the less people matter. So the way we need to work this out is we need to make God matter less so we matter less. That's a lie. The more God matters in the Bible, the more people matter because we're his image bearers. So the higher we acknowledge the dignity of God, guess what happens? The tide of humanity rises. Don't fall for that lie. 
Don't fall for the lie our culture teaches us. And the third thing is that the gospel is, infinite, the gospel is infinitely more precious than we imagine. So Jesus is infinitely more important than we imagine. Our lives are infinitely more important than we imagine. The gospel is infinitely more precious than we imagine. Let me explain what I mean. You know, the clearest and most compelling proof that the, that the justice of God, that the judgment of God is inescapable for all people is that it was inescapable for the Son of God. Now, our experience might teach us, might appear to teach us that it is possible to evade the, the judgment and justice of God, but friends, you cannot look at the ministry of Jesus Christ and draw that conclusion. You see, the justice of God is inescapable, and Jesus proves that to us. Someone, someone is not going to be able to escape the justice. Do you for your sins. And there are only two choices, right? Choice number one is that you will be caught by the justice of God. Have you ever thought what that would be like? To be completely unable to defend yourself? I mean... I don't know what was going through the mind of Jokar or whatever his last name is. I can't pronounce it. I tried this weekend. I practiced multiple times. I can't do it. But you know who I'm talking about. He's just one guy. The vast array of forces. There was no way he was going to win. Friends, God is very And he is perfectly righteous. And he knows all the evidence. You can't, if you, to be caught by the justice of God, uninsulated, is not the alternative I plead with you to take. Because the second alternative is this, is that Jesus Christ himself voluntarily surrenders himself to the justice of God in your behalf. Hallelujah. That's what the cross is about. Jesus voluntarily, willingly, lovingly, obediently, sacrificially, substitutionally surrendered himself to the justice of God. You see, the justice of God against the sins of Christ's people is not, is not escapable. It's inescapable. But the way that God has answered for that is to to give into the world a son who is one like us, who shares our flesh and our feelings. And that son, perfectly obedient to the law of God, perfectly fulfilling God's vision for humanity, that son, at the climax of his life, voluntarily surrendered himself to the justice of God to be our shelter and our hiding place. Oh, what a savior we have been given. Yes, the justice of God is inescapable for the Christian because Jesus Christ surrendered himself to it. Oh, it's amazing. And because Jesus did not 
even want to escape the justice of God, do your sins. Just think about that, my Christian brothers and sisters. I just want you to, to ponder that, that Jesus didn't try to escape. He knew what was coming. He knew what it was going to cost. And he, he didn't want to escape it because he knew that unless he stood between, unless he himself stood between us and the consequences of our sins, there was no inheritance for us except the wrath of God. And he stood his ground for us. And because he did, and because he did not evade the justice of God, my friends, because it was inescapable for him, then that means that for everyone who has surrendered their life to Christ, everyone who repents of their sins and embraces Christ as Lord and Savior, that for you... There is nothing left of the justice of God that is not satisfied. No scintilla of unfulfilled justice. No microscopic molecule of unfulfilled justice. No aspect, no facet, no question of any aspect of God's justice against your sin. If you're in Christ this morning, my friends, if you're in Christ this morning, There is nothing left of God's justice against your sins. It was satisfied. When Jesus uttered his last words from the cross, he said, it is finished. And in response, the father tore the curtain of the temple from top to bottom. And they meant it then, and they mean it still today. There are no footnotes. There are no asterisks. There are no exceptions. There is no fine print. There is no Dear John letter in the mail. There is no other shoe ready to drop. There is no pullback. There is no hesitation. There is nothing left. It is finished, my friends. It is finished. There is no more justice of God upon you. You have been set free by the one who willingly gave himself to not escape that justice on your behalf. It is incredible. And to think that that plan and that purpose was framed in the heart of God from before the foundation of the world and in the eternal counsels of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before there ever was a universe, enter into this pact of salvation among themselves in the fellowship of the Trinity, and they plan and purpose this redemption, and the Son pledges himself to make an appointment with his Father that when the Father is ready in the fullness of time to pour out the full measure of his wrath against the sins of his people, when the Father is ready to no longer forbear, the Son promises to meet him on Calvary. And to be there, the judgment bearer in behalf of his people, to think that that plan has roots that go all the way back into eternity. Friends, you're very secure. You're very secure. I could go on for hours about that. So stop dragging yourself into court. And don't let the devil drag you into court. Because every time you fall for that, what you're saying is, you know what? I believe that 
Jesus didn't finish everything. So that's the first part. That's only the first subpoint. <laughs> you see how the gospel is amazing? Okay, second point about the judgment is that it's familial. And what I mean by that is that when Jesus explains, I mean it has to do with family. Okay? So here's what I mean. If you look at the parable of the weeds, when Jesus is explaining the parable of the weeds to his disciples, you notice this that in verse 38, he describes, he describes all of humanity in terms of two groups. And it's interesting, it's kind of surprising, because we would expect if, if God, I mean, I think most of us are wired this way, we would expect that if God is going to describe the criteria uh, by which a final judgment is going to be applied, we would think that it would have something to do with our deeds, wouldn't we? But you notice that's not how Jesus describes it. He describes, it, he describes it in terms of something that's even deeper than our deeds, something that actually explains our deeds, okay? And he, he describes it in terms of two groups that are described in familial terms. You are either sons of the evil one or you are sons of the kingdom. Do you see that in verse 38? So everything depends on who your father is. Everything depends on who your brother is. Your eternal destiny depends on this fact above all facts. Whose name do you hold? Whose record, whose history, whose family history are you laying hold of? Who do you belong to? That's what he's saying. And so the, the, the fundamental question, the one fact, the sifting criterion for all eternity is, do you belong to Jesus Christ? Do you have God as your Father through Jesus Christ, right? It's exactly what the Apostle John says in John chapter 1. But to everyone who received him, who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave them the right or the authority to become the children of God. You see, when you receive Christ and you believe on his name and you rest on his work, what happens is that your family of spiritual origin by the power of God is transformed. You were a weed before. And now, by the miracle of the new birth that is the gift of God's power, you are made a son of the kingdom. Friends, do you know what your family of spiritual origin is this morning? And do you know that you cannot change it in your own power? That if you're a son of the kingdom and you have Jesus as your brother and God as your father, the only reason ultimately that you do is because God in his mercy replanted your life. It's what's called being born again. And I've never met a single infant who caused their own birth. Amazing. Friends, make sure you know whose son you are. There's nothing more urgent for you in your life than to be sure who you, whose son you are, who your father is, what family you belong to. You know, just being in church doesn't mean you're a son of the kingdom. I need to say that. Having a Bible and reading your Bible doesn't mean you're a son of the kingdom. Praying doesn't mean you're a son of the kingdom. 
even liking you know, Rock of Ages, even the old setting of Rock of Ages. That doesn't make you a son of the kingdom. Growing up in a Christian family doesn't make you a son of the kingdom. Being a pastor doesn't make you a son of the kingdom. There is one thing that makes you the son of the kingdom. Your eyes are opened by the grace of God and you realize that in Jesus Christ, you see before you not only the righteous judge, but the gracious judgment bearer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And with all the might that you realize you possess, you give yourself to that king and his word. That's what makes you a son of the kingdom. There is no such thing as a spectator who is a son of the kingdom. So please don't be a spectator or a spiritual rubbernecker or a spiritual window shopper. And the third criterion is that of the judgment or the the third aspect of the judgment is that its consequences are eternal. And friends, here's what I mean. Three times in verse... Uh, 39 and 40 and uh, 49, Jesus emphasizes that both these parables are ultimately about the close of the age or the end of the age. You see, that's what Jesus is doing pastorally here. He knows his disciples are going to wrestle like the master's servants and say, wait a second, you know, we be- Jesus, we believe that you're the king and we believe that, you're co- that you brought the kingdom, but there's so much evil in the world. What? This is so confusing to us. And Jesus' pastoral response is, okay, I understand that tension. Now let me fast forward you all to the end of this age. And let me assure you what's going to happen at the end of the age. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Three times he talks about the close of the age or the end of the age. And what he means by that is that this period of time, this the history has phases. And there is a phase of history, an age that we're in right now, where the, weed, where the weeds and the wheat overlap, where they grow together in the same field, where the bad fish and the good fish swim together in the same sea. But you notice in both parables, that age doesn't last forever. There's an end. There's a harvest. There's a uh, pulling in of the net when it's full. There's a time duration that is known to the master. And there are three things in this, three aspects of the eternal character of this final judgment that Jesus emphasizes. The first, what, in other words, he's describing, and we're going to focus again, next week we're going to focus on, on the unending eternal enjoyment of the sons of the kingdom. When they will shine, look at verse 43. I just cannot wait to preach verse 43. We're going to spend a whole week on verse 43. The sons of the kingdom will shine like the sun in the kingdom. They'll shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The righteous. Sorry, I need to know what the text actually says before I preach it. The righteous. Oh, we could spend hours just on that. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Oh, I want you to come back for that next week. But this week, in order to appreciate the the wonder of that promise, we need to be sobered by the the dark side. And there are three things about it that we're going to see. First, this Christless eternity is, uh, is a future of final and eternal separation from God. Final 
and eternal separation from God. You see, in this age, there's an overlap. And at times, it looks like the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian doesn't matter. But if you believe the Bible, right, the most important difference in the universe is whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. That's the only one that matters. Are you in Christ or outside of Christ? That is the most important distinction. And in the end, it's the only one that matters. But it looks so often like it doesn't matter to God. But Jesus is showing us, friends, that there's a day coming when that overlap is going to end. And you know, this tension, you see this in the Psalms. I, I love reading the Psalms. You see it in the Psalms. Psalm, and two good psalms to read on this issue actually have numbers. This is why it's easy to memorize. Uh, have numbers that are the reverse of each other. Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. They both deal with this issue. It's like the psalmist is like, hey, Lord, you're righteous. But I look out there and it looks like the wicked are leading. And so Psalm 37, David says, fret not. Fret not because of evildoers. And in Psalm 73, because the meek are one day going to inherit the land, God says, be patient, trust in the Lord, cultivate faithfulness in the land, persevere. And in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, you know, I see the wicked and their eyes bulge with fatness. That's an attractive image. He says, how come they're prospering and I'm suffering? You know, I'm wondering if I worked really hard for, for nothing. And then, and then the psalmist says, you know, I pondered hard to understand this, and then I went into the sanctuary. I went to worship. And then I saw their end. I saw that their feet were on slippery places. See, that's what Jesus is doing in this parable. He's assuring his disciples and he's assuring us that the wicked don't win. God wins. Nobody gets away with anything. And it's not because we are then deputized as vigilantes to enforce the kingdom of God. Please don't misunderstand me. It's because God is king and God enforces his justice and God enforces his righteousness in his time. And very often that will be through the suffering of his people under human injustice. See exhibit A. So if you have a triumphalistic vision of God winning and Christianity taking every aspect of culture captive before the second coming of Christ, you need to recalibrate your vision. And this parable is telling us that one day that intermingling is going to end, that overlap is going to end, and there will be eternal separation of the wicked from God. They'll be thrown away they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. And that leads to the second point, which is that the Christless future is a future of eternal punishment. Not only are the weeds and the bad fish and all causes of sin and lawbreakers uh, and all the evil gathered out of the kingdom and forcibly evicted from Christ's kingdom by God, but they are also punished and severely thrown into the fiery furnace. Jesus says it twice. And that furnace is burning 
with the anger of God against the unrepented sin of men. I can't say it any more plainly than that. You owe God your love. You owe him your devotion. You owe him everything that you have and are. And when you withhold it from him, when you won't acknowledge your sin, when you refuse to turn in in response to his warnings, it makes God angry. And the Bible speaks about the wrath of God in the Old Testament at least 600 times. This is not a a theme that's in the corner of the Bible. And it is a very prominent theme in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of the apostles. And so, friends, this is not a cartoon. Jesus is saying it twice because he wants to make sure we understand the stakes of not repenting, of not yielding to the king are eternal and they involve punishment. That fiery furnace burns with the anger of God against the unrepented sin of men, particularly in the shadow of the cross. When there is not repentance at the foot of the cross, when God has made a provision, when he has said, I show you my final judgment. I I exercise my final judgment upon my son. Before it ever falls on any man, it falls upon my son. And when you scorn that, when you turn away from it, when you make it a cartoon, when you caricature it, when you say, oh God, when you use his name in vain, you use Jesus' name like it's filler in conversation because he doesn't matter to you. That makes God angry. And rightly so. Because he's made a shelter in Jesus Christ out of his love. And what did you give him? You gave him your scorn. You gave him your disobedience. You gave him your unholiness. You gave him your enjoyment of sin. You returned no thanks to him. No honor to him. And what does he do in the fullness of time? He sends his own beloved son into history to be the law fulfiller on your behalf. To be the curse bearer on your behalf. And yet still you turn away from him. Still you refuse to repent. It's exactly what God talks about in Psalm 7. He says, when, if a, God is a God who has, is a righteous judge who has indignation all the day. Friends, if you have grown up under teaching that tells you that the holy God is not angry against the unrepented sin of man, you have not been loved. You've been lied to. Psalm 7, which was the text for Jonathan Edwards in his sermon the only sermon that most people know Jonathan Edwards ever preached, centers in the hands of an angry God. And in that psalm, David says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. It is time to take God seriously, my friends. Finally, 
uh, this Christless future is a future of eternal grieving and loss. Twice, Jesus says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that needs to sober us. Twice he says it. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. That is unending grief. That is a picture of the experience of hell. That is the picture of what it means to be eternally separated from God, eternally separated from Christ. Friends, I plead with you to let those words sink into your ears. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and that will be all that there is forever. The halls of hell will be haunted with the regret of those who know that they scorned the gift of God in Jesus Christ, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The measure of the loss of hell, every, everything, that the cross, see, the, the, the reason we need to take this seriously is because the one who tells us these parables is the one who in a very short time in this gospel and in his ministry is going to place himself literally under the weight of hell. So he knows what he's talking about. And he's going to go there. And he's going to experience it. He's going to experience in his dying upon the cross the eternal forsakenness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he does that first so that we will see its reality and so then we will respond and take shelter in his work. Everything we need to know about Uh, God's judgment and about the realities of hell uh, we learn at the foot of the cross because the cross teaches us that God's justice is real. It's so real and it is so exacting and it is so severe against sin that nothing less, no other remedy was available besides the substitution of the Son of God. And what makes hell ultimately hellish? What is the measure of the hellishness of hell? We see it at the cross. What is, what is it that makes heaven heavenly? We see it at the cross. You see, what makes heaven heavenly and what makes hell hellish is Jesus Christ. The knowledge in hell is that this great Son of God The righteous judge himself who gave himself to be judged in the place of his people was scorned. And so to have a Christless eternity is to have a hellish eternity. And what makes heaven heaven is that this Christ, this Son of God, who would give himself in the place of his people to to bear the wrath of God in their place, that this one, that you could have him and spend eternity with him and be sheltered by him, that is what makes heaven heavenly. It is Jesus Christ and everything we need to know about heaven and hell. We learn at the foot of the cross, my friends. And so that leads us to our two concluding observations Two applications. 
and I'll, I'll do these very quickly, I promise, and I'm not lying. The first one has, at least not that I know of, excuse me, and the first pastoral implication has to do with the mercy of God. You see, the amazing thing about these parables is that both of them talk about this delay period, this delay between the beginning of the king's work and the ultimate end of the king's work. It's true in the net, the net, parable of the net, the net is dropped into the water and it's not pulled up until it's full. And in the parable of the weeds, the master says, no, 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 we're going to let them grow together. There's going to be this period of time we're going to let them grow together. We're not, going to pre- we're not going to do anything precipitous. And you remember what the master says to the servants? He says, I, if, the, ma- the servants are like, let's go get them. Let's go get those weeds. And the master says, no, 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 no. And why does he say no, no, no? Because you might uproot some of the wheat. What an interesting master. Do you see what the logic of the master is? The master's logic is this. I'm willing to endure ambiguity. I'm willing to endure the charge or the skepticism of even my choice servants that it looks like I'm not in control for this great end. I want all my wheat. I want my full harvest, and I'm going to get my full harvest. You see, what these parables are telling us is that God is merciful in this age, friends. Between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, we live, like today, okay? We live in an age of mercy. And at the cross, which means we live in an age of opportunity, right? At the cross, what God the Father and God the Son are declaring and what the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to us of is that at the cross, the living God said, over all of creation, right? Let there be mercy. And now there is mercy. And God saw that there was mercy and sees that there is mercy and sees that it is good. Mercy for sinners in Jesus Christ to be able to come to him and find shelter. So friends, you've been surprised. You've been challenged. You've been frightened perhaps by some of the things that you've heard this morning. But let this ring in your ears. There is mercy today for you from God in Jesus Christ that is more than sufficient for anyone to come in and to be made a son and daughter of the kingdom. Do not scorn the mercy of God, please. And then secondly, I want you to think about the mission of God that is implied in these parables. You see, and here's where I see the mission of God. You know, when I read these parables, I want to think that this is about somebody else's problem because I'm a Christian now, right? So I'm good. This is somebody else's problem. It's not mine. But you know, that's not how Jesus treats it. Did you notice? Verse 36. Who gets the explanation of the parable? Do the crowds get the explanation of the parable? No, the disciples get the explanation of the parable. And only the disciples get the explanation of the parable. And so you say, wait a second. Wait a second. It's the crowds who are vulnerable to judgment. Jesus, why aren't you, shouldn't you be... Shouldn't you be doing this explanation thing out in public so the crowd's here? I mean, your disciples are already saved, right? So why are you explaining judgment to them? 
Why aren't you explaining to the people who aren't your people yet? And you know what? That, that doesn't seem fair. And if that's what Jesus was doing, my friends, I agree with you. It wouldn't be fair. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is much more radically committed to the crowds knowing the truth about his judgment than the disciples or we could ever be. It's, the question is, how is it that he is making provision for that news to get to the crowds? And guess what? It's through the disciples. It's through us. He has every intention of the crowds and the world knowing about the reality of his judgment. But here's what he's doing. He's saying to the disciples, I'm entrusting this to you. It is now your responsibility as my messengers, as my ambassadors, to bring this news to other people. You see, anytime we're going to say to Jesus, and listen, I say this sometimes, and I know you say it because I've heard you say it. I've heard you ask me, hey, Jesus, how come you aren't making this plainer? I think Jesus' response to the disciples and to us is, why haven't you made it plainer? Friends, there's a great responsibility that we have as those, for those of us who are in Christ, a great responsibility that Jesus is entrusting to us. This is important. This is urgent. In that place, there is going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want you to think about who it is that God has put in your life right now who needs to hear this. And I want you to seek God's grace this week to, to speak to them about it, to trust him, to provide you with his spirit to do just that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that there is a shelter for us in the Lord Jesus, that he is a hiding place for us, and we want to be people who celebrate his gift of shelter by calling out to others to bring and welcome them in to join us. Equip us for that mission to be full of the good news of your mercy in Christ to this world. And we pray in Jesus' name.